HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. And this is our 352nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, I am back at our Heritage Radio studio in Brooklyn, New York City, with a super-accomplished writer of Cocktails and Culture, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start with my PR tip, then later we'll have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to get in the mix. Put yourself out there. Get in the conversation. Pursue activities that interest you and causes that motivate you. Surround yourself with people who inspire and challenge you to be your best self. Simply get active. The more we put ourselves out in the world or in the mix, the more we'll get back. So let's mix it up. Life's awaiting. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm so excited to be back at our Heritage Radio studio today with my guest, who is Robert Simonson. He writes about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times. And he is the creator and author of the Substack newsletter, The Mix with Robert Simonson. Robert's books include The Old Fashioned, A Proper Drink, and Three Ingredient Cocktails. He was also a primary contributor to the essential New York Times Book of Cocktails, which has two editions, and has won the 2019 Spirited Award for Best Cocktail and Spirits Writer. His work has also appeared in Vine Pear, Punch, Imbibe, Sever, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine. I could go on and on. And he's been nominated for a total of 16 Spirited Awards and four IACP Awards, as well as a couple James Beard Awards. So without further ado, 
Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's glad to be back in this studio. I haven't been here since uh, 2019, I think. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you back. I haven't been here since 2022, I believe. I've been doing some remote shows. But um, yeah, it's nice to do in-person interviews in our cozy little studio. Yeah. Yeah. Just like it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming. Um, We've known each other a, a while through the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm so excited to hear about your story and how you started out as a writer. So you want to take us back? Cause I believe you were in theater writing before the cocktail world. Yes. Yes. I've always been a writer, but I, and always been a journalist since I graduated from college and, and indeed, even while I was in college. Uh, but I did start writing about the theater. I wrote about theater because that was the family business um, my, uh, mother was a, uh, drama teacher, music teacher in high school, and she encouraged us to go out for plays and musicals. Um, my sister, older sister started out as an actress. She became a costume designer. My brother started out as an actor, became a director and playwright. And my brother-in-law is an actor. So it's all there. I didn't want to do any of that. I liked writing. And so I decided to become a theater writer, a theater critic. And then eventually I became a playwright, and that lasted for a while. Um, and I did that for about 15 years until I switched to uh, cocktails. Wow. I didn't know the whole fam was in the biz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like to joke that we're the most prominent theater family in Wisconsin. <laughs> so funny. Amazing. So so why? What made, what made you switch? Um, I had gotten a little burnt out. I mean, the theater, as you can imagine, is a pretty small world. And if you've covered it for 15 or 16 years, you've met everybody and you've interviewed everybody and written every possible story. Um, and so I sort of felt like I was on a treadmill and just going around in circles and uh, doing the same things over and over again, you know, getting a little bored with it. And so I was looking around for a different beat And then by accident, I was invited down to Tales of the Cocktail, the cocktail convention in New Orleans, and um, saw that there was this, this, I was 2006, saw that there was this movement afoot to bring craft cocktails back to make cocktails better and to restore the bartender to his one-time position of respect in society. And so I switched to that. At the time, nobody was doing it. So it was easy enough to convince my editors to let me give it a try. It's crazy to think nobody was doing it, whereas today many people are doing it. Yeah, or, many, yeah. many, too many. Yeah. Um, at the time, the only people who were writing seriously about uh, cocktails were mainly bloggers. There were, there were cocktail enthusiasts who, uh, they weren't journalists, but so in order to write about their passion, they started blogs. Blogs were very big in the aughts. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm thinking back, I mean, on the food beat, Andrea Strong, when she started her blog, The Strong Buzz, it was, a, I mean, I think it was even like 2003 or four, like before that, but like, yeah, blogs were the thing of getting your words out there. Yeah, and there's Paul Clark with the Cocktail Chronicles and uh, Camper English and and yeah. uh, many others. So, so you did, were you hooked right away? Like you were like this, I love this beat to be covering? Yes, uh, because... Even though I didn't realize it in my subconscious, I had always been interested in cocktails. Uh, my parents drank cocktails. The, the cocktail hour was observed every day. My mother drank old fashions. And my dad drank martinis. And Wisconsin's a big drinking state. And so I was always curious about 
that history, those drinks, and what went into making a good one. Um, even as a young person, I knew the term mixologist. You know, you know, I don't know why I knew that term, but I knew it before it became popular all over again. Also, there were some uh, comparisons between um, mixology and theater. I mean, bartenders are actors. The bar is a yeah. theater. There is a lot of ritual. There's a lot of superstition. And also, like the theater... Uh, particularly American musical, which is a distinctly American invention, the cocktail is an American invention. So there were parallels that um, made the transition from writing about theater to writing about cocktails a little smoother than you might expect. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, as soon as, as soon as you were saying that with hmm. the, the culture being, yeah, the, the entertainment part of dining out or going to bars and being that it's, it's like theater, it's an experience. Yes, so. exactly. And a lot of the uh, bartenders were once actors. Yes, yes, true. So then, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started writing for the New York Times in 2009? Yes. So how did that come about? Because And you've, you're still writing for the New York Times, which is, like, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's been, like, 14 years. I've, I've probably written more words about cocktails for the Times than any other writer at this point. I would think, yeah, I think you, I, I second that. And, yeah, yeah congratulations. So, um... When I was decided to write about cocktails, you have to get your foot in the door somewhere. Uh, there was a newspaper back then called the New York Sun, much right. smaller circulation, um, which was in business for about 10 years. They had, a, they had good culture pages, good food pages, and I convinced my editor. I was writing for wine, about wine for them. And I said, well, you'll give me a chance with cocktails. And they didn't have anyone else doing it, so they did. So I racked up about two years of clippings, and all that whole time I was pitching the New York Times. I had written for the Times before, but in the theater pages. So I kept pitching. The editor at that time was Pete Wells, and uh, he's still the, the uh, restaurant critic. And you just pitch and pitch and pitch. And I must have pitched, you know, easily like 30 or 40 story ideas over two years. And finally, he said yes. The story he said yes to was uh, the old fashioned was back after, you know, not being a popular drink, being a fuddy-duddy drink that your parents or grandparents drank. Suddenly it was trendy again. And he took that story and more followed. There you go. Yeah, no, that's... Um... That's, I mean, it's when you're saying about pitching and pitching, I was like, familiar as a publicist. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, as a writer, you got to you gotta pitch your story. Right, um, especially if you've never written for that publication before. It takes a long time to convince that editor that they should take on another writer. Right. Well, you convince them, and then obviously you um, did well because you're, you're still with them. Are you... Do you write a certain amount of column or articles now for the New York Times, or do you, or is it just when there's a story to tell? Because I'm asking this because I recently saw like your piece on uh, Angel's Share that and and I feel like you always have the breaking news of what's happening in the cocktail bar world. And mm -hmm. You do, um, so yeah. So do you have do you have a certain amount of articles you're writing, or is it more where? No, it's a uh, piece by piece. You just okay. constantly pitch and. Uh, um, people, uh, assume I have a column. I don't have a column. It's not regular. You just, uh, whenever a story comes about, you get an idea for a trend story or breaking news, you pitch it and either they take it or they don't. So it ends up being, you know, whatever, 12 to 15 articles a year, but it's not regular. Sometimes a couple months will pass and there'll be nothing. And then another time in a month, you'll end up writing three articles. 
Um, it certainly helps writing for the New York Times uh, as far as the breaking news is concerned because people come to you and say, this is happening. Do you want this story? So, but yeah. um, I, you're, you're the go-to, of, I would say. Uh, well, yeah, to a certain extent. <laughs> but, of course, that's, that's, that's my perch, you know. I mean, uh, I benefit greatly from writing to the New York Times. It's a great newspaper. Uh, but the Angel Share thing that you mentioned, I... I developed a relationship with them over the past year. And so, as you know, they've gone through a lot. Uh, they lost their old space on Stuyvesant Street. And then they did a pop-up in a hotel in the Flatiron District. And now they have a new space. Um, they weren't really a bar that courted press a lot. So uh, once I got to know the family that owns it and, and they realized that they could uh, trust me, um, they continued to come to me with news yeah well it's about relationships yes and, yeah. exactly about relationships yeah that's that's awesome what um what would you say in as since you've been covering the cocktail scene now for a long time uh changes in in it um that like the most noticeable from 15 years ago or longer than to today well of course the pandemic changed everything it changed uh the way we went out uh the um, the tenor and attitude of the bars, uh, things became uh, more casual. They became more uh, interested in like, let's just have a good time because life is short. Um, also things were introduced like to-go cocktails that hadn't existed before. Um, the drinking public, particularly the young drinking public became interested in the classics a lot more. As you know, we're in the middle of a martini craze and that didn't exist really before the pandemic and uh, things like the espresso martini. I think things have gotten a lot uh, simpler and fun-loving. Um, but uh, taking a longer view, like if it's to like look back 15 years ago to today, um, it's just that uh, craft cocktails and craft cocktail bars are so common that we basically take them for granted at this point. Uh, you just expect there to be some good cocktail bars wherever you go, whatever city you're in. And uh, also when new restaurants open and hotels open, in the past you wouldn't necessarily expect that they'd have make good cocktails, but now it's, it's taken for granted. Of course, they put thought into it. They hire a bar director. They hire a skilled mixologist um, because if they don't, they're, they're not competitive. Yeah, no, it's true. You're right. You kind of take it for granted. You just expect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, since in the past six months in New York, so many new places have opened because things were dormant for so long. A lot of places sadly went out of business, and that leaves the spaces. And so now that people are going out again, I mean, it feels like a torrent of openings in the past yeah. six months. Just like seems like there's one every day. It's almost impossible to, to keep up. True. I try. Yeah. Try very hard. <laughs> I, I do my best, but, uh, you know, you can't, like, uh, have two two dinners a night for every night of the week, so you're going to get behind. Yeah, yeah. No, sometimes I do that when I travel, but I typically don't do that when I'm here. Um, yeah, I've also, I've been noticing, I don't drink alcohol, so I've been noticing that as um, restaurants are putting non-alcoholic, spirited, or spiritless drink sections on their cocktail list, which is something I never saw even like a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's interesting to see that, that, that change. Yeah, that's a trend. I think that started before the pandemic. People were interested into low ABV stuff. Yeah. I sort of feel like uh, drinking trends sort of follow whatever the bartender's doing. So, I mean, 
at the beginning, you know, bartenders were interested in the old cocktails, so we drank the old cocktails. And then they were, you know, they drank a lot of boozy cocktails, the so-called, you know, bitter, boozy, and brown kind of cocktails. So we had those two. When they got interested in gin, we got interested in gin. When they got interested in mezcal, we got interested in mezcal. But then after a while, some of these bartenders started to cut back because mm-hmm. you just can't keep up that lifestyle. And so suddenly there were imaginative low ABV cocktails on the menu. And then some of the bartenders stopped drinking altogether. And then suddenly there were non-alcoholic cocktails on the menu. Uh, But I think that was a result of uh, also of the pandemic. During the pandemic, when we were all quarantining and we all had to make our own drinks, at first, I think we went a bit overboard. We were like Mm -hmm. drinking a lot, drinking strong drinks. And then we realized, well, we can't do this forever. <laughs> and then everyone got interested in non-alcoholic drinks and how they can have that and you know, go to the bar, still have a good time. Those are really good explanations for that, for, for what, what I'm seeing out there. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your Substack newsletter because you have one called The Mix with Robert Simonson. Um, I, I used a little of the take off the mix as my PR tip today. My, yeah, I saw my that. own version of getting in the mix. But let's hear about your version of it. Yeah, I approve of the word the mix. It's, it's, uh, I say it a lot these days. I started it in January of 2022. Uh, that, again, was a result of the pandemic. Uh, for many people, including myself, work dried up because you know, work just ground to a halt. I'm a freelancer. And so the people that usually hired me were hiring me less. And I thought, well, I have to get a little more self-reliant. And also, uh, you get pigeonholed just like in any industry. And I'm a cocktail writer. And sometimes I like to write about other things. Uh, some magazines and newspapers have given me the opportunity to write about food or travel or other things like that in the past, but not as often as I'd like. And so it's called the mix. It's it's uh, has double meaning. The mix, you know, makes you think of cocktails, mixing up cocktails, but it's also a mixture of content. And so it's mainly cocktail stuff, spirit stuff, bar stuff. But there is food. There's regional food. There's travel. There's history. There's a little bit of theater. So I just put it all in. Um, it lets me write about exactly what I want to write about. Yeah. Well, I saw. I mean, I saw you. You have. Some of the articles you had the martini, some you know, martini music, and you had the New York Fifty on iconic cocktails. Yeah, that's a thing that I did early, where I tried to. Um, there was this feature that Camper English, who's a writer in San Francisco, did or has done several times, where he tried to identify the iconic cocktails in San Francisco, like what are the most famous and where are they served, you know. And he made this great list, and nobody had done that for New York. So I thought, well, I. I can probably put that together. I've been to enough bars and drunk all these drinks. So I figured out what I thought were the most famous iconic drinks. So that did well the first time. So now I'm just going to do it on an annual basis. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite cocktail? What you... Oh, well, mean, that's a tough today, one. Today, this moment? Right, right now. Right now. Well, it's always going to be a <laughs> classic. Um it used to be uh, the Sazerac, then it was the Old Fashioned, and then it was the Martini. At home, I just go back and forth between those and Manhattans and not as many daiquiris because, you know, making sours is a little extra work. An extra cleanup. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to do the, you have to squeeze the fresh juice. Um, and I think you can only really drink sours at the beginning of the evening. 
Uh, sometimes my wife, you know, will want a nightcap and she'll say, it's like, what about a Jack Rose? And I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> you do not want that citrus acid, you know, lying on your stomach as you go to bed. So you're also a smart drinker. <laughs> well, you, you learned you gotta, over time. You learned something over the yeah, years. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, let me ask you my question for my last guest. On episode 351, I had on Nikki Nakayama. She's the chef and owner of N Naka, which is a two Michelin starred restaurant in Los Angeles, serving modern kaseki with a California twist. And you're going to hear more about that later because I went there on solo dining experience. And we talked about going to a restaurant. But, and she also has N Soto in Los Angeles, which I also went to while I was, I was just out there last week. Um, so... Nikki would like to know, is there a Japanese flavor profile that you feel really matches tequila? You mean f- Japanese food to go with tequila? That the these the way she the I read the question the way she said it, but yes, I think uh Japanese I guess you could say food that goes or, with tequila. Or does she mean like mixing with tequila Japanese spirits? I mean, if that's the I, question, you know, you I mean, it's all, I mean, sake and shoshu mix with a lot of spirits. I generally see them with gin or vodka, but it could go with tequila. I think, I mean, you can interpret it or we can interpret it however um, we we would like. Yeah, so we'll <laughs> but, just... Um, I think, I think she was talking a Japanese flavor profile, like, with, with as far as cuisine, but... Oh, okay. But, but maybe I'm reading that wrong. I don't know. Whenever I go to, I mean, we have a lot of Japanese uh, themed bars, oriented bars here in New York. And when I think of cocktails that go with Japanese food, I tend to think of uh, drinks that have the white spirits, uh, vodka and gin and shoshu and sake. Um, But it doesn't seem to me a a very uh, large leap to think that a silver tequila you know, mixed in with a few other things to make it a bit softer might yeah. go well with those foods. Yeah. 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 No, when I, when she was asking the question and then she, the last word was tequila. I was like, I didn't see it coming because typically it's not something, um, I don't think people talk about as much with yeah. flavor, uh, you know, matching with Japanese flavors. Right. In general, I don't know how you feel, but I don't drink spirits with food. I tend to have cocktails beforehand, and then when I move on to the food, I'll I'll go for uh, wine. Yeah, well, I don't I don't drink at all, so mm-hmm. I tend to drink a lot of uh, water and mm-hmm. bubbly water, and <laughs> and now but that sparkling water is the best. But it's nice it's nice to see that there's there's thought going into these non alcoholic cocktails on menus that rather than winging it, which bartenders in the past have liked to do when you tell them you don't drink alcohol, they'll wing something for you. But then it's like sometimes out of balance because they're winging it. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I guess I'm in a sense missing that um, you would, you would have more experience with that, with the food pairing with the alcohol. Yeah. They used to be very big uh, in the aughts. They were always pushing those spirited dinners. And I never thought it was a good idea because uh, cocktails are twice the alcohol of uh, beer or, or, or wine. And you can't keep up that pace through several courses in a meal. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, I hear you. And actually a restaurant I was at in Los Angeles, I went to this place called Camp Four, which was really great. And I was had dinner at the bar. I was talking to the bartender's 
and they were telling me how tequila was like hotter than hot. They can't like they that that it's like the most popular thing happening. And I was like, okay, um, I didn't I didn't realize it was that. And when when was this? How long ago? Uh, last week. <laughs> yeah, the agave spirits have been super hot for like the last four or five years, particularly uh, mezcal, but tequila too. You know, there are a lot of new brands, celebrity brands these days. Yeah, that's one thing that bartenders have done for us in the past decade, you know, because tequila, I mean, it wasn't, it was a, a spirit that was drunk, you know, but mainly in shots and margaritas. It wasn't necessarily like a, re, a respected and revered spirit in the United States in the way that, say, cognac or single malt scotch was. But now it absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's what I was told. And uh, according to them, so. Yeah, every time I go out at a bar and I ask what the most popular drink is on the new menu, it's always the agave drink, always. Okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Before we take a break, let's talk a bit about, you've done how many books? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> six cocktail books, and there's, um, yeah, six. Six. That's amazing. I mean. Yeah, I'm very uh, productive. I, <laughs> I just, um, it's it's hard for me to not work, not write. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, but that, I like that, that you've got drive. You want to, you're, you're a worker. I'm a worker. Um, what, I mean, do you like, I mean, do you like doing books or you, I mean, obviously you've done several. So, and what inspires you to do the different topics you've done? Um, there. Yeah, no, I love writing books. I love writing in general. Um, and, uh, I mean, everybody wants to add books to their resume. Um, you don't necessarily just want to be a, a freelance journalist all your life because journalism is, uh, it just kind of evaporates. It's evanescent. You know, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow and it's forgotten and you move on to the next piece. But a book is more permanent. And uh, I know a lot of people, they they try their hands at books and then they'll, they'll just write one and then books are hard to write. And they'll, they'll say, like, I don't want to ever do that again. Uh, and well, they'll stop. I have a, well, I have a book coming out. So <laughs> yes. I now have, I get it more of the, it's hard. It is hard. It's a lot. It's, it takes a lot to do a book. And my book is on chef's advice. And the, the words are mostly other, the chef's words. And I wrote the intros and curated the whole thing, but it's not, um, yeah, it's a lot. So I can relate. I feel I have some experience now to relate to what it takes to do a book. And, um, so yeah, um, it's gotta be a labor of love, I would say. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, every book has it had a different motivation. Um, I like to think that uh, I'm pretty good at spotting what's going on, you know, before other people. And so I think a lot of the books were, they came out at just the right time or a little ahead of time. The first one was about the old fashioned, because as I mentioned earlier, the old fashioned came back into style in the early aughts after not being in style for a long time. It's a very old drink, like 200 years old. I just noticed it was everywhere and young people were drinking it. And also there had never been a book written about the old fashioned. Uh, and so that was my first book and that came out. And uh, that was one of the first books that was just solely about one cocktail. Since then we've had books about the Manhattan, books about the uh, Negroni, books about the Bloody Mary. Uh, the next one was called The Proper Drink. That was very different. That was a history. I was trying to tell the history of the cocktail revival 
while it was still fresh to tell and all the players were around. And so that was the hardest thing I ever did. I interviewed more than 200 people for that. And that came out in 2016. Then I did something called Three Ingredient Cocktails. And the idea behind that was I felt co cocktails were becoming more too complicated and they were becoming intimidating. And I wanted to remind the public, the reader, that anyone can make a good cocktail because the best cocktails are simple cocktails, usually have three ingredients. And so that's the idea behind that. And then I wrote uh, the martini cocktail, which was about the martini. And I sort of thought, I think in retrospect, I wrote that too soon uh, because the martini boom was beginning, but it was not in full flight yet. Now it, it's everywhere. And I feel that book, it came out in 2019. And I think if it came out today, it would have done better. But in 2019, you know, it's like people weren't ready for it. Yeah. And then there was uh, Mezcal and Tequila Cocktails, as we mentioned. Agave spirits are very hot. Mm -hmm. um, Mezcal did not used to be a spirit that you mixed with, but now it is. So that's what that was about. And then there was the most recent is Modern Classic Cocktails, in which I wanted to set down the history of the drinks of the past 20 years that uh, have proven very popular and probably will stick around. That's incredible. Do yeah. you have a new book on the horizon? Yes, yes, but it has not been announced by my publisher, so I'm not allowed to say anything about it. All right. It. <laughs> Sorry. No, no worries. All will be I, revealed. I thought maybe we'd have some breaking news, but it's okay. I can I can I can wait. And yeah, congratulations on that. All all of that. It's you've accomplished a lot. So oh, yeah, well, you know, books they're like uh they're like the legacy and they're also the retirement fund. You know, the hope is that, you know, yeah. they do well and then you get royalties and then, you know, you can eventually retire. All right. Well, fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> okay. So on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Robert Simonson. He's a writer about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times. And he's the creator and author of the Substack newsletter, the Mix with Robert Simonson. Robert, it's time for my speed round. 
Okay. I'm ready? ready. Maybe I'm ready. I don't <laughs> I know. I think you're ready. I think you were born <laughs> ready. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Eat in at home. Indoor dining or al fresco dining? Indoor dining. Of course, I guess it would depend on the weather. <laughs> True. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktails. I like cocktails best. That's why I write about them. Yeah, that makes sense. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Tasting menus take too long. Small plates or large plates? Oh, uh, if it's large plates, are we sharing? <laughs> <laughs> if it's small plates, are we sharing? <laughs> mm, I, I, I think large plates, large plates. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm so used to tipping. I'm going to say tipping because I sort of know what I want to do and it's in my hands. There you go. Shaken or stirred? Stirred. Plays or musicals? Plays. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. That is because I have all the sweet tooth. <laughs> I took that from you. Okay, Manhattan or Brooklyn is the last one. You mean the cocktail? You're not the first person to ask that, and no, I don't, but you can answer it that way. <laughs> it's Brooklyn for the borough, Manhattan for the cocktail. Love it. Yeah, a few people have asked me that. I think it's all the people in your world. <laughs> That's the way our weird mind works. Yeah, all my cocktail focus shows, I get that question. I was actually, um, I mean, I've been thinking about that recently because I've been convinced that there's no way to make a good Brooklyn cocktail. But I was recently at this place called Stage Left in New Brunswick, which has a very good cocktail bar. And their most popular drink is the Brooklyn, and they make an excellent one. All right, good to know. Mm -hmm. uh, doing your research. Yeah, always, always. Always. <laughs> Okay, so for industry news this week, I picked out an article that was in the New York Post. It's entitled, Michelin-starred chef offers New York City restaurant workers massive 70% discount on menu items. This was by Jennifer Gould. And this came out, I believe, yesterday, just talking about Chef John Frazier. It's multiple restaurants. Um, he's he's known, he, he's in the past had Dovetail and Nick's, and, and now he has Iris, and he, uh, the Marchand, or Marchande, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, um, North Fork Table and Inn out in Long Island, and he's decided um, that he wanted to, like, give back to restaurant workers who, as we talked, referenced the pandemic, how hard it was to get through that time. So he's offering, he's basically, like, holding tables at his restaurant, I think one table at each one, um, for people who work in the industry to come in and they will pay the food cost for a dish versus the regular cost of what what is um, added to cover all the costs of running a restaurant. And, um, and yeah, he's just doing it kind of on, I think, goodwill to kind of give back a little bit. And uh, that's a great idea. I think it's cool. Those are some wonderful restaurants he has. Um, yeah, I mean, yes. uh, the people in the hospitality interest, industry, they can't necessarily always afford to go to the places mm -hmm. uh, um, that 
the people that they serve can afford to. Uh, and, um, and that's, that's important, especially now, uh, since the pandemic, you know, prices have gone up, um, because of supply chain issues and, and, uh, you know, the availability of certain goods, it seems like everything has skyrocketed, uh, a dish that used to cost, um, you know, $23 is $28. And, you know, the new price of cocktails at most places now are $19 and $20. I, I, I was hoping I'd never see that day. When I, when I first started writing about cocktails, when people wanted to make fun of the cocktail industry, they'd talk about expensive cocktails. But they'd always exaggerate. Even though the cocktails were $12 or $13 or $14, they'd always say, the age of the $20 cocktail is here. And I'd go, where? Where's that $20 cocktail? I can't find it. But now they are, unfortunately, everywhere. Yeah. No, I I mean, as someone who dines out a lot, I have noticed that it's it costs more um, mm-hmm. than it did before the pandemic. And I, I get it. Uh, and I've been to, I mean, I know John and and he's, his, he's an excellent chef and his restaurants are they're wonderful. Um, Iris, I've been to I think twice now. It's pretty close to where I live and it's a, it's a lovely experience. So, but it's, it's can be a little pricey. So I think this is, uh, this is really nice that he's doing this. And there, there's some, I mean, he's calling it, uh, the, the industry table experience. And there's, there's some rules, I guess you say, like you can only book it, I think per restaurant, like two times a year and, one of the guests needs to be employed in the restaurant industry because uh-huh. alcohol is not included. Okay, um, so the the wine remains uh, at the price it would be for uh, regular civilian diners. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it had an example of the food cost though being he has a a thirty two dollar eggplant moussaka, which is will be nine dollars and sixty cents instead. So you also get to see the markup that's happening. <laughs> but, yeah, it's sort of the way it always is. Often the the bar is paying for the expenses of the restaurant. You know, it's it's always yeah. on the back of the bar. So it's too bad he can't offer the the nineteen dollar daiquiri for nine dollars. We'll see. Maybe he'll listen to this show and be inspired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but he's doing good. I don't want to I think it's like this is all a very nice gesture and so I give him a lot of credit. He's doing it across all of his restaurants and and so um yeah, yeah. It's 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 very nice. Um you do what you can. Yeah, I've been to a couple of those excellent restaurants. Excellent restaurants. So, yeah, if anyone out there restaurant people, check it out, you know. Uh it's a good opportunity. Okay, so for my solo dining experience, I alluded to it before, but um, this week it's at N Naka. So here's the rundown. The location, 3455 Overland Avenue in Los Angeles, California. The concept is a global destination for modern kaseki with a California twist. The chef and owner is Nikki Nakayama, also of N Soto in Los Angeles, and she works alongside her wife and co-chef, Carol Ida Nakayama. So why'd I go? Well, if you listen to my last episode, you'll know why. I mean, I was interviewing Nikki and I had this opportunity. I had reached out uh, to her publicist about doing the interview and also seeing if I could get into this very popular, hard to get into restaurant in Naka. And I was able to get a reservation. So, um, 
I was super excited to go and I got the reservation at it was a 9.15 p.m. reservation, but I took it because wanted to go and experience it a little late to be dining for a full on. This is Kaseki um, full on tasting menus, you know, a few hours of a meal. But um, I had the most lovely experience The well, first of all, Nikki is so warm and welcoming and her whole team was just gracious and just made me feel so special. It's an intimate restaurant. There aren't, I don't think there are more than 25 or four like diners at a time. Um, it was, it was really wonderful and special. It's about 12 courses. Um, and at the end I told them I recently had a big birthday and they came out with a a candle in one of the desserts. And also they did something really cool, which I've never seen at a restaurant. At the end of the meal, my server had a Polaroid camera and he actually took a picture of me with the Polaroid and gave me a picture, which I like never, I dined out a lot, never saw that. And I thought that was so cute and, and cool to be doing. So it was a wonderful experience. So what did I get? Well, it was about 12, 13 courses, I believe. And I have the menu here, top of it, when they gave it to me at the end, they even put in happy 50th birthday, Sherry, like, woohoo, they knew. Um, so courses, there was a sakizuki, which was a mushroom panna cotta. That's what it started with. And I'm not going to name all the details because it would be too much, but just to give you a little taste of it, there was owan, which was a local black cod with tofu dashi and uzu peel. There was a sashimi course. There was a course called Mushi Mono, which was a California spicy lobster. And the standout was a, this um, signature dish of, of Nikki's called Shizakana, which was spaghetti, abalone, pickled cod roe, and truffle. And actually reading it out loud, it sounds a little funky, but let me just tell no, you. sounds amazing. <laughs> let me just tell you this dish was like wow. I was like, wow. Um, but the whole thing was, was fabulous, but that I was really like, this is, I see why you can't take this off your menu. Um, and at the end there were desserts. It was called Mizumono. There was a lychee sorbet and a raspberry cake. So and these are, the portions are, they're small, they're small bites or little portions. I know it's going to sound like a lot of food and it was, it was a significant, significant amount of food, but not, I didn't leave there feeling like, I overate actually felt like the right amount. Like they got, they got the amount down. So it was really, really fantastic. Um, and they also poured me a couple tastes along the way of um, some non-alcoholic beverages. And there was like a, a, a like a, um, a matcha tea at the beginning. And also the plateware they use, I have to say was gorgeous. They just they have all these like beautiful little dishes because um, most of the plates are 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 small, small plates. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, with thirteen courses, yes, you got to do small plates. So the ambiance is uh, it's minimalistic. It's like a, a very welcoming space, but with dark wood tables. But it's it's really it's um, your focus is on the food. Uh, perfect for I'd say a special one of a kind experience solo or a date night. And there was also a party there of six people sitting. Uh, across from me. And I was, I was like, oh, that's cool to go out with a group of friends and do this. I was impressed. Uh, interesting tidbit. So Anaka has received, it has two Michelin stars. It first received them in 2019. Also the restaurant uh, is featured on season one of the Netflix series Chef's Table. I just rewatched it and uh, it's a great showcase of what 
what the restaurant is and, and Nikki's career and, and what inspired her to create this restaurant. And she's also in my upcoming book, Chef Wise. So um, very cool. I hadn't met her before. So I very it was really wonderful. And personal fun fact, on my way to the airport, I stopped at her other restaurant called Ensoto, and I had I had some sashimi there and nigiri and some skewers. This is a it's a izakaya inspired Japanese cuisine and it's more casual. So I was glad I was able to check that out too. So the cost of Ennaka was $310, not including tax and gratuity. So it's a pricey one. It's a very special experience. But I think if you're if you're looking for something special, I think it's worth the splurge. Would I go back? Sure, I would love to go back. The website is n-naka.com and Instagram at n-naka restaurant. There you go. Sounds delicious. Thank you. It was. It was very... I feel I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky I can do these things, you know, and meeting her was really, really cool. She's just a really warm person and I'm very happy for her success. So, Yeah, we're all lucky here in New York. It's such a vibrant dining culture. Yeah, yeah, it is. And LA has a strong scene going on. I like visiting. So. Yeah, me too. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No, this is cool. This is fun because I know you know this person. My next guest is Gia Vecchio. She is the founder of Foxglove Communications, a publicity strategy and marketing agency focusing on hospitality based in Philadelphia and New Orleans. Some of Gia's clients include chefs Alan Shia, Ashley Christensen, Gregory Gorday, and she does the PR for Tales of the Cocktail. Yes, she does. Uh, so, Robert, can you please ask a question for Gia? Yes. How does she balance the needs and demands of the client with the needs and demands of the media people that she's dealing with? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm going to see what she says, and I'm going to take her advice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that must be a daily challenge. Yeah, well... It is, but I think like all of our jobs have their challenges, but um, she's she's a really, I feel, I see her growing her company and I'm so impressed with everything she's doing. So I'm sure she's going to have a great answer for that. I know she will. Very cool. Um, that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. This oh, is fun. Thanks for having me on. And if anyone out there is interested in the Substack, you can find it at robertsimonson.substack.com. It's very easy. Very cool. And you're on social too. You want to? Yes. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Robert O. Simonson, on Twitter at R.O. Simonson. And I forget about Facebook, but I'm not on there much. Yeah, well, it's probably you. Your name. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably my name. It's yeah, it's my name and possibly my middle initial O. Okay. So. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on all you've achieved. I know, I know, I have a book or two of yours at home, and um, I can't wait to see whatever the next book of yours is and it's, go to the book party. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for having me on. Thank you. My guest today has been Robert Simonson. He's a writer of cocktails, culture, spirits, bars, bartenders, and check him out, as he said, on his Substack website. Uh, and and um, 
follow him. And uh, follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. My new book is coming out, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. My publishing date is now May 3rd. The book is available for pre-order at Fiden.com or Amazon.com or wherever you can get books. So check it out. Thanks to my engineer today, Armin. Thanks again to Robert. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with a new show. I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.